0: invite you to join me in taking out your copies of God's Word. Um, I'll, be, I'll be really uh, taking us to two scriptures tonight, but one of them I'm going to save for the middle of the sermon, just so it's a, a little fresher as I talk about it. Uh, but the first one is Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, 18 through 25. As you're turning there, I'll also remind you of kind of the diving board text for tonight, which you've already stated with me in our uh, catechism. And that is, of course, Exodus 20, verse 14, where God says, you shall not commit adultery. Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18. And the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground, the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all the cattle To the birds of the air, to every beast of the field, but for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. And God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord God had taken from man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones, and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. So far in the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Our Father, we uh, thank you for this, your word. We thank you that in the midst of all the lies in our culture and in this world, in our own hearts, your word stands and presents us with the truth and your eyewitness account of events long ago. Father, we pray that we would live by faith. And live for the glory of your name when it comes to these things. And we ask it in Jesus name. Amen. So 10 commandments are fun to preach on because there's so many ways you could tackle each one. Um, But this last week, I, I was just thinking about things we hear. Things we hear. And I'm betting you've all heard something like this. Uh, professing Christian, defending their, their sexual infidelity and abandonment of their marriage and divorce with something like, God wants me to be happy. In other words, my feelings trump God's word. Because God would rather me enjoy myself than be true to himself or hold me to that. Uh, something like after all god wouldn't want me staying in an unloving marriage don't you you hear that all the time that's not just hollywood anymore for a while that was who was saying it hollywood in their movies that you know someone would be falling for someone else but they were in a a bad marriage and uh so the movie would make you want them to be unfaithful and end up with this other person at the end of the movie no that's not just hollywood anymore Hollywood has infected all of society and in the church. This is what we see as well. God doesn't want me to stay in an unloving marriage. He wants me to be happy. He doesn't want me to stay in an unloving marriage just to keep my vows when I could trash my vows and find what is right in my own eyes. Okay, no one's saying it like that, but that's, that's what we're saying so often. Obviously, there's a great problem for us in our sinful hearts. We just don't like being told how to live. That's really what this comes down to, isn't it? All of these issues of the Ten Commandments are issues of us not wanting to be told how to live by God. Furthermore, uh, even as Christians, we've been brainwashed about sexuality. And that affects how we view marriage then as well and vice versa. Any mention of the seventh commandment makes us think of, of sex as a, a dirty thing <laughs> or makes people think that Christians think of sex as a dirty thing. The, the reality about the seventh commandment is it's saying the opposite. It's saying sex is such an amazing and holy thing that it is too valuable to take lightly. But we haven't been very consistent talking and thinking about it that way in the church over the last couple centuries. And that's why it matters so much that we think about the seventh commandment and think about it not disdainfully, uh, but seriously. Um, So so this week I was thinking about myths that our culture tells us about marriage or sexuality and uh, how they relate to this this Seventh Commandment. This is going to be pretty basic, but I think it's good for us to think and review on some basic things occasionally. There are many myths that our culture and the church today tell us about marriage and sexuality. I'm sure you could add five or six to the three I'm going to use, but I just want to think about these three today. The first myth that our culture and the church today tells us is that marriage is a cultural institution don't you hear that everywhere? Marriage is a cultural institution what what is meant by that what is meant by that is sinful sinful men who were in charge of some culture at some point put together this institution probably very intentionally so they could uh, suppress women. Uh, Something like that. Not everyone views it quite like that, but but something like that. That uh, this is an institution created by a culture, and that has several uh, results. If marriage is an institution created simply in and by a culture of men, then a culture of mankind can redefine it, change it, or simply throw it out the window, right? That... That's the purpose of making this point in our culture, that marriage is a cultural institution. And the biblical response that we see in Genesis 2, and that we, we see God uh, very basically, essentially stating in the seventh commandment, is that God has established sex within the creational institution of lasting, exclusive marriage. That's a very different way of viewing the institution of marriage, isn't it? God established it, not culture. And he established it in a certain way and to be a lasting thing. Marriage originated with God. Genesis one twenty-eight, right before what we read today. Genesis one twenty-eight. God says of the man and the woman created in his image. He blessed them and he said, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. God establishes this institution and he establishes it with a mission and a purpose. And that purpose is actually to create culture. So where the myth of our culture is that Culture itself has created this thing called marriage. Genesis 1.28 shows us that it's within the God-created marriage that God created culture. It's the other way around. Marriage is the establishment of the first culture, and it expanded out from there. And so it, it is important for us to have that mindset if we're going to think about the seventh commandment, not in the way of the world. And we also read in Genesis two, 23 and 24 that the two become one flash. And that language even speaks against this cultural ideology because the myth that culture has created marriage comes with uh, another thought that marriage is just a piece of paper. How many movies have you heard this? In? I've heard this in a number of, of chick flicks. Uh, you know, something like, Well, I love you. And I don't I, I don't need to pay some man or some some government money to say that I've already said I love you. That's all it is, right? It's a piece of paper that says I love you, but I already love you. Which is obviously a far better thing than just a piece of paper. But Genesis two gotta say, No, it's not a piece of paper. It's a fusing together. Of two image bearers. Which is an astonishing thing. To become one. This is a mystery. Says Paul. It's a mystery. There are mysteries in the Christian faith. When my daughter and I this morning. Looking at some catechism questions. uh, Children's catechism. And the Trinity came up. Oh. That's a mystery. That's hard. What does that mean to How do you explain that? It's a mystery. And God says marriage is the same thing. It's a mystery. There were two. Now they're one. That's hardly a piece of paper created by a culture. It's a created thing from God, which only he can bring together and make. And so it demands that marriage be viewed in a very honored Manner. Here, here Hebrews 13 verse 4, when reflecting on this. Marriage, Hebrews 13, 4, marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is to be honored, but God will judge those who cast aside marriage. Now if if it's just a human-made, cultural thing, then the most that could be judging you for casting it aside is that culture. And in our culture with the sexual revolution, there was that, that emphasis on oh, how brave. How brave. You're standing up against the culture's judgment of your lifestyle. But Hebrews 13 tells us no. No, God will judge those who set aside his Established lifestyle. Calvin writes, adultery ought to be detestable to us as a mere word. As if men deliberately wanted to despise God like raging beasts, wanted to break the sacred bond that God has established in marriage. And then elsewhere, Calvin writes, God does not want men to lead an animal existence or for those who are not married to stray about yielding themselves here and there the way dumb animals do wherever they meet. We are going to wallow. Are we going to wallow in every kind of stench? (laughs) What, What a question, Calvin asks. And what a question that reflects the culture we live in. Are we going to wallow in every type of stench? Everything a beast would do. That's our culture. And how did that start? Did it start bestially with uh, with a couple of years ago a change in how we view marriage with regard to the sexes and who can marry whom? It didn't start there, did it? Uh, just a couple of years ago, uh, Carl Truman wrote a, a fantastic and very scholarly book called um, The Rise and triumph of the modern self. And he begins that book by challenging that the gay marriage uh, definition is not where the battle began. It's the necessary consequence of a battle we lost long ago when in the, was it the 70s or the 80s? No fault divorce became a legal thing in our country. The battle was over. Why? Because if you can get a divorce without anyone sinning, then it's just a piece of paper that the government has signed. It's not the two becoming one flesh. Once that went, it was inevitable that all other bestial things would follow. And that's what we we are living in. In fact, only... I'm going to say only one of us in this room, it's not true, few of us in this room lived before the battle was lost then in our country, if Truman is right. Uh, that, that's a frightening thing, because I think most of us in this room remember a time that we think of as greener on the other side. But once we say that marriage is just a piece of paper, no one has to have sinned, and we can rip it all up and move on, we've already redefined marriage and cast off restraint. So that first myth that uh, marriage is just a, a cultural institution, the Bible rejects that wholeheartedly, and the seventh commandment forbids us to accept that myth. A second myth is that sex is physical and Christianity is spiritual. You hear that too, don't you? You don't hear that as much from the world, though, as you do in the church itself. At least that's where I hear it the most. In professing churches themselves, sex is physical, Christianity is spiritual, Conclusion to that myth? Pastor, don't preach on the seventh commandment. That's not what Christianity is about. Don't preach about adultery. Don't preach about marriage. Preach about what really matters to Christianity. Restrict yourself to the cross or good works or whatever you define Christianity as being. But don't talk about sex. That's a physical thing. And Christianity is a spiritual reality. Of course, the Bible doesn't accept that either. And this is where our second major uh, sermon text this evening comes in. I'm going to read from 1 Corinthians six, twelve through 20, where the biblical response is essentially this. In response to the myth that sex is physical, Christianity is spiritual, 1 Corinthians chapter 6 says, the body is for the Lord. Let's read that in context. But it's an astonishing thought. I don't think we think about it nearly enough. And I remember uh, a couple of years ago hearing uh, our friend Stephen Tracy preaching on this text and saying that he thought it might be one of the least meditated on statements in the New Testament. That the body is for the Lord. So here's 1 Corinthians 6, 12-20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be brought under the power of any. Food is for the stomach and the stomach for food, but God will destroy both it and them. Now the body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God both raised up the Lord and will also raise up us by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body, but he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit which are God's. So myth number two, sex is physical, Christianity is spiritual, the Holy Spirit tells us here, Christianity is physical and spiritual. Physical and spiritual, both together, necessarily. Now this is, uh, of course, a very deep passage, and I'm not going to hit on all of it tonight. One thing that might be helpful as you uh, try to meditate on this passage more on your own this week, is to realize, and I think the ESV is helpful here, I think it puts quotation marks around two statements, um, that most scholars think that in this section there are multiple things that that the Corinthians are saying that Paul then states and responds to. In the New King James, that doesn't come out very well, but I think it's the ESV that puts quotation marks on two out of three Of those statements, and unfortunately, they don't put the third. But we can't blame the ESV because the New King James doesn't do it with any of them. But uh, so, so for example, uh, all things are lawful for me, right? The Corinthians are saying all things are lawful for me, and Paul, and and some scholars think that's even them reflecting on something Paul had said long ago when he was with them, and they tore it out of context. And so Paul's response: Yeah, but not all things are helpful. (laughs) <laughs> All things are lawful, but, but I won't be brought under the power of any of them. And then the second c- uh, claim they make, it: uh, food is for the stomach and the stomach for food. You see what they're saying in Corinth with that statement. Food is for the stomach, stomach for food. And then the unspoken assumed thing is sex is for the body and the body for sex. Paul, don't tell us to flee sexual immorality. Food is for the body and the body for food. You just do what comes naturally. And this is natural. Uh, Sounds like America, but it's, it's Corinth. And Paul, of course, responds to that as well. The body is not for sexual immorality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Yeah. We were created to be in union with God. And as Christians, we are brought into union with God in the union we have with Christ by the work of the Holy Spirit. And if our bodies are members of Christ, and if our body is the temple that the Holy Spirit dwells in, right? The indwelling of the Holy Spirit, uniting us to Christ, then what are we doing in that temple, with that temple? It reminds me of Numbers. I think I'm right in saying this is one of Peter's favorite stories as well as my own. But Numbers, there's that moment when the the foreign women are dragging the the men of Israel into sexual immorality. and, And God sends a plague out on the whole nation. And it's going out from the sanctuary. And so the people are crying out. They're seeking God's forgiveness. And what happens? One man of Israel brings his prostitute or whatever into the temple court or the the tabernacle court he takes her into a tent in the place of meeting with god right in front of everyone hey look what we're about to do and thousands die before phineas stands up and takes a spear and deals with the situation and makes atonement according to god and that's the kind of imagery we ought to envision paul using here And perhaps it was even on his mind. You are the temple, the dwelling place of the Holy Spirit. So flee sexual immorality. You were bought at a price. Sex is physical. It's also spiritual. Christianity is spiritual. It's also physical. The reason I I said sex is... uh, physical Christianity is spiritual is mostly heard in the churches because I I think that at least the culture is this honest, the culture worships sex. It understands that something spiritual is often going on. Not always, but many understand there's something spiritual going on in sex. And it's, it's the church where we lie to ourselves about that often. But that myth is cast aside by 1 Corinthians six twelve through 20. And then a, a third myth uh, tonight, and this overlaps a lot, uh, but the third myth is sexuality doesn't affect the gospel. It doesn't affect the gospel. It doesn't get at the heart of what the gospel is all about. You know, because we know that the gospel is about being nice. Or giving people purpose. Or guiding them to comfort. Or helping the poor. Or whatever the thing might be. But it's not about what's going on in my bedroom. Um, One sadly far too popular Christian, I'll say Christian in quotes a little bit, podcast a while back, talked about, mocked, what he called crotch Christianity, as opposed to cosmic Christianity. Crotch Christianity, he defined as Christianity that's just worried about what I do with my body parts. And cosmic Christianity, the right thing, is concerned with in the vi- the environment, uh, the poor, uh, liberty, freedom, justice, equality. Cosmic Christianity. Surely Christ is concerned about that. Christ doesn't have time for your crotch. that That's the crass thing he's saying. This is a very popular Christian podcast. But is that what scripture says? Is that what the seventh commandment <laughs> permits? Sexuality doesn't affect the gospel. And of course the biblical response is God uses marriage and sexuality to point to his faithfulness in covenant. Surely that makes it a gospel issue. Think about that. In the Old Testament, God repeatedly uses the imagery of romantic love to depict his covenant with the elect in Israel. And so he'll spend three chapters in Hosea talking about romantic love towards an unfaithful bride with the end result that she will be faithful afterwards. Jeremiah has statements about that as well and other prophets. And always the emphasis is that the covenant relationship lasts even though we are untrue because God upholds his word. And he's saying that about himself with the imagery of marriage. That makes it a gospel issue. New Testament doesn't change that. It only drives the point home more powerfully, doesn't it? In the New Testament, of course, we're all familiar with Ephesians 5. This relationship is pictured as the marriage of Christ and his church. He is the self-sacrificing bridegroom and the church is to be his submissive bride. And when we are not submissive to him what's the gospel message he remains faithful to us How can we say that sexuality and marriage don't affect our gospel presentation when God himself in his one of his most powerful images presents the gospel as the faithfulness of his marriage vows. It certainly is a gospel issue. Well, I'm sure you could come up with more myths, our culture tells us. I want to stop with those three. But I think if we take time, whether it's with myths like this and how we've bought into them or just asking ourselves how we view the seventh commandment, how we view marriage, how we view the use of our bodies or the way we view our bodies. Uh, I think we have to admit, most of us at least, may- maybe some of you don't struggle with the seventh commandment. Most of us would have to say, at least in our hearts, we have sinned against the seventh commandment. We have been unfaithful in thought, if not in word and deed. And how do we then respond when God in in Hebrews tells us that he will judge these things? I think we can take encouragement from the fact that with all the commandments, they are put before us to show us how utterly unfaithful we are. That's one of the uses that God gave the Ten Commandments for. Not just to teach us how we may live but to remind us we need a savior. We need a savior. And that savior is the groom. He's the one who's used marriage itself to paint how strong his love is. He's used our unfaithfulness and infidelity itself to show how much more powerful his love is. That though we are unfaithful, our unfaithfulness cannot, the sin of our hearts cannot outdo his love. And so he says in Hosea chapter 2, 19 through 20, to a a wayward and wicked and unfaithful and adulterous church, he says, I will betroth you to me forever forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in steadfast love and in mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. Beautiful hope for the wayward sinner. And then as we think about marriage, And think about the marriage vows itself. We were given a challenge. I I like how Ray Ortland talks about this. He talks to the repentant heart to be encouraged by considering that the seventh commandment calls on us to redeem sexuality and to redeem it in terms of our marriage vows. So maybe you're thinking of marriage vows down the road. Maybe you've made marriage vows. Um, What's Ray Ortland saying? He says the following. That all who go into marriage know or ought to know that they will be tempted to unfaithfulness in some format. And therefore, he writes, marriage vows are a man and a woman saying before the moment of temptation to unfaithfulness arrives. I am pre committing to stay true to you. As long as we both shall live. I think that's beautiful. That's what why why vow those things? It's us pre-committing to this thing. Pre-committing knowing that we will be tempted. Tempted. But again, as we break these vows, it is our dear Savior who is not defeated by our sin. And so let us with confidence draw near to God and let us with a humble faith in him turn to the keeping of this commandment, trusting that God wants the best for us, the best for us. There's another lie of our culture, isn't it? Another myth is that Christian marriage and all that that has attached to it is uh, restrictive and that real love, real joy, the best is no limits God we need to trust wants the best for us to be eternally happy and that eternal happiness specifically in his presence holy in Christ Jesus our Lord pure as he is pure honoring the marriage bed and looking nowhere else for real satisfaction and fulfillment than to the lover of our souls that's why I chose all those hymns about love tonight because the ultimate thing that will keep you upholding the seventh commandment is not saying, I think I can, I think I can. It's not saying, I really love my wife, I want to be better than this, or or I, I want to stay pure because Jesus tells me to. It is saying I have a lover who is true, and he is more beautiful than all the world. All the meadows all the nations, all the people, all the pleasures. He's the lover of my soul, and he offers me exquisite delight in his way. Thanks be to God. Let's pray.